0: The following audio is from Redemption Church, San Francisco. For more information, visit
1: RedemptionSF.com. The reading of God's word comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give it, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see that your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do, so, do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds all of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please. Can...
0: Good morning. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to be with you all um, to worship with you today. I'm, I'm, I'm glad for those of you who it's your first time. Can I just get a show of hands if this is your first time, if you're visiting us? Awesome. Okay. Uh, welcoming team key in on those people, okay? (laughs) Grab them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, We are so happy that you guys are here and uh, not watching your brackets as we get into God's word today. Um, Let me also invite you, if you don't have your Bibles, why don't you raise your hands and there'll be a couple of people walking through the aisles. We'd love to get a a Bible in your hand so you can follow along with us in Matthew. And I would also say, if you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you. Um, That is our gift to you. We'd love for you to to press into God's word, to dig into God's word on your own. Um, I always say this, but it's a privilege for me anytime that I can uh, be up here and open up God's word and speak from it. And, and we actually have a lot of work to do today, so I'm going to uh, jump into it. What we heard read earlier in Matthew 5, 13 to 20 is God's word. Amen. Yes. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> um so I think many of you guys know this. Um, you've probably seen one or both of them around church, uh, but, but I have two kids. I have a, a four-year-old son. Uh, his name is Jordan. Um, he's gonna be, or he's gonna be four in a couple of weeks. And I have a, a, a nine-month-old son, Levi. Now, now I love my kids, okay? I, um, I love being a dad. But, but oftentimes I find myself wondering or trying to imagine what, what life was like before they came into the picture. I dream about the good old days. I dream about the quiet days. I'm just kidding, kind of. Um, but, but, you know, when I try to do that, when I try to think about um, what life was like before them, it's really hard for me to do that. It's really hard for me to remember what that looked like because that seemed like a lifetime ago. My, my kids have completely and utterly changed the way I live my life, the way I view my life. And, and so a couple of examples, um, these are just small ones, but um, I used to be the kind of guy who um, I, I had no problem sleeping in, okay? And so if I didn't have something to wake up for, I could easily sleep in past 12. But now, after having kids, I, I, I kid you not, I am physically incapable of sleeping in, I wake up at 6.30 a.m. on the dot every day. And the funny thing about that is that my kids don't even need to be around. Like, like, even when they sleep in, I wake up at 6.30 because they have changed my body. They have conditioned me to wake up with all of their crying and their noise at that time. And, and so they've kind of, like, awakened this internal alarm clock within me. Another change that, that I've seen in my life is um, going out to eat at restaurants, you see, um, going out to eat at a restaurant, it used to be so enjoyable. It used to be so fun and so easy. When it was just me and Allie, um, when we were dating or it was just the two of us, it would be as simple as, hey, hun, what do you feel like? And, and wh- whatever it was, wherever it was, we would just go. But, but parents, I think you all know what I'm talking about. Going out to eat with a baby is one of the most stressful things in life right? Because there is so much that you have to to pack. You have to pack diapers. You have to pack wipes. You have to pack your own utensils. You have to pick a restaurant that you can fit a stroller in. And and probably worst of all, you have to prepare yourself for all the evil looks and dirty stares that, that people will give you because your baby is crying during the meal. See, even going out to eat Has changed. My life has changed because of this relationship, because of these kids that have come into my life. Now I'm a parent and I have children. And and I want to ask you to consider, is there somebody like that in your own life? Is there somebody that has had that kind of uh, impact and and transformation on your life? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Maybe it's a mentor. Somebody that you can't imagine what life was like apart from them or before them, that they've had that kind of impact on you? See, so yeah, I ask that question and I bring up this, that idea because today as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, okay, as we continue on in this series that we started a few weeks ago, what we are going to see today and what we're going to see throughout the Sermon on the Mount it is a picture of the kind of radical changes that will happen when you encounter the most significant person. When you come to uh, open your heart to what Scripture tells us is the most important person that you can know or you could have a relationship with in this life, and that person is Jesus. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, it teaches us that coming into a relationship with Jesus, it, it changes everything. And so um, just as as a little bit of a recap, we opened up this series um, three weeks ago saying that when you have a relationship with Jesus, your life will start to look countercultural because Christians are called to be set apart. And then two weeks ago when we looked at the Beatitudes, we talked about how a relationship with Jesus is going to change you to your core so that what you believe a good life is, what you believe a blessed life is, it is changed. See, for for a Christian, the good life isn't dependent on temporary, circumstantial things. It's not dependent on how much money you make. It's not dependent on the house you live in or the car that you have or the white picket fence. It's not even dependent on your marital status in this life. But for Christians, the good life is about knowing who you are in Christ and knowing all that you have in Christ. See, In Christ, when you have Christ, you can be poor in spirit in this life and be blessed. You can be meek, you can mourn, you can even suffer persecution because not only is the kingdom of heaven yours, but Jesus is yours and he's yours in the storms of your life. You see, when you open your heart to Christ and you have a relationship with him, you are changed to your core in how you view your own life. But today, what I want to talk about is that's not the only change. You are not just changed when you have a relationship with Christ on how you view your life, but you are changed to your core in how you view the world around you. You see, this is what our passage is about today. Today's passage is about how a relationship with Jesus will change your view of the world and your purpose in this world. Or let me get a little bit more specific for us. Having a relationship with Jesus will change your view of San Francisco and what your purpose is in San Francisco. For disciples of Christ, no longer is San Francisco a place for you to use to accomplish your purposes, to accomplish your agenda. It's not a place where you're supposed to fulfill all of your career goals and all your goals in education. It's not a place where you're supposed to build the life and the family that you've always dreamed about. But Jesus is teaching us in this passage that for Christians and for his church, this city has to be seen through God's lens, that we have to approach San Francisco with his agenda. We, we need to seek to accomplish his purposes, and we do that by being salt and by being light. See, these are the two pictures that we're going to see in our passage today, and it really teaches us what God's agenda for his church in San Francisco is really about. And so I want us to look at this first picture in verse 13 when he tells us that we are the salt of the earth. Read it again with me. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon people's feet or under people's feet. Now, the first thing I want us to notice um, in this is who Jesus is talking to. Okay, because I think it's important for us to know that Jesus is not talking to a singular Christian. I know our English translation, it says that you are the salt of the earth, and so it's easy for us to read that as a singular you, as a singular me. Uh, I I think um, we need to to understand that in, in the original language, in Greek, there's actually more precision in their pronouns, so we know that Jesus is talking to a group He's talking to a community of his followers, of his disciples. Jesus is really describing the church here and not a singular Christian. And I think it's important, and I mention this, because I don't know about those of you who are familiar with this passage, but I think there's often a tendency in our individualistic Western society to read this passage as primarily talking about our personal responsibility, Right, that Christians have this individual responsibility to go out into the world and be a witness. This is a go-to passage for people who say that we need to do personal evangelism. Now, I believe that that's true. I believe that each Christian is salt and light wherever they go, and I think we do need to be involved in evangelism, but I don't think we can overlook the fact that, that you cannot fulfill this call to be salt and light apart from Christian community. Jesus is talking about the church collectively here. He is talking about how the church is meant to be salt and light. And so Jesus is saying that you and I, if we are Christian, we need to be invested in, we need to be concerned with the testimony of the church that we're a part of. We need to see ourselves in light of the community that God has placed us in. And so we need to be on mission together. We can't be fragmented. We can't be isolated. And my point is this. I think it's foolish for any Christian to read Jesus's words here and think that as a singular grain of salt, you can effectively go out into the world and fulfill this mission. That you can effectively salt. You can effectively light up this world. You have to be plugged in to the church. You have to be committed to the body if you want to be effective as salt and light. See, I say this all the time, but the Christian life wasn't meant to be lived alone. That that God is accomplishing His purposes; He is fulfilling His agenda for the world through His church. And so this is my challenge to those of you who are trying to go at the Christian life alone. Please stop and consider that that's not God's will for you. God doesn't want you to live for him by yourself. His will for you is that you would do it attached to his body. And so once we're clear on that, I want us to see what Jesus is talking about. Jesus here is teaching that God's agenda and his purpose for the church is that we would be salt, now, now, if you are familiar with this passage, you might have heard this before, but the purpose of salt back in Jesus's day, it wasn't mainly to, to flavor the food. Okay, salt back in Jesus's day was mainly used as a preservative to, to keep foods and to keep meat from rotting and decaying. They didn't have refrigerators back then, and so how they preserved their meats was they would cover it in salt, and that would act as a preservative. So when Jesus here says that that's what the church is supposed to be for the earth, I think the disciples would have had a clear picture in in their minds of what he's talking about. That Jesus is saying the church is meant to preserve the world. That the church is meant to preserve the cities and the cultures that we are placed in. We are to preserve the, the, the city of San Francisco from the decay and the destruction that sin causes. He is teaching us that his church is meant to be a presence, meant to be a force that fights against the darkness and the sin that's so prevalent around us. And so you need to understand that ever since Genesis 3, when sin is first introduced through the fall of Adam and Eve, that sin's power and its mission has been to twist and to distort and to destroy God's creation as he intended it. So before sin was introduced, death did not exist in creation. Before sin was introduced, murder did not exist. And yet, right after it's introduced in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, we see Cain murdering his brother. We need to see this effect that sin has had, that before it was introduced, deceit, theft, exploitation, adultery, divorce, none of these things existed. That's not how God intended his creation to exist. And yet as soon as sin comes into the picture, all that is good in God's creation, all that he intended for us to enjoy, it is now tainted because of sin and creation and we who live in it are suffering the decaying effects of sin. We see the Apostle Paul talking about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. It should be on the screen. Paul says, for the creation, he's talking about this physical world waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, which will happen when Jesus returns, because creation itself then will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, even the physical world is suffering because of sin. And not only that, we see human society suffering because of sin. And I know each of us, we feel that whenever we see another senseless act of violence in the news, You know, when we see another school shooting, when we see another terrorist attack, when we see leaders in our society, leaders that we're supposed to look at and and be examples for us when they're exposed in sin and scandal. And so I don't know about you guys, but more and more when I read the news, all I can think to myself is this world, this city, this society is not the way that God intended for us to live. And as I'm faced with sin and evil around me, I ask Jesus, Jesus, when will you return? When will you redeem and restore your creation? And I think that in moments when when God responds to that question, what he says to me and what he's saying to you is soon. Jesus will come back soon. But until he does, that's what you and I are here for. That's what the church is here for, that God calls the church to be agents of change, to be agents of redemption in a world that is suffering the decaying effects of sin, that we are supposed to be fighting against the darkness of sin in San Francisco by being a community that doesn't go with the flow of sin, but we firmly stand against it. That we're supposed to be the kind of community that has the purpose of showing the watching world around us that this world, with all the sin that's in it, is not the way that God intended for us to live. And we do that by showing them a different way of living. So, So get what I'm saying here. Something about the way that the church is supposed to love, it shows the world something different. Something about the way that our marriages are in the church, it's supposed to show the world something different. When, when Christian men are faithful to, to, to their wives by leading them, by honoring them, by loving them the way that Christ loves the church, when Christian women are wives that submit and support and empower their husbands to leave, it shows the world something different. When, when Christian singles live out their, their season of singleness by being faithful to God, by serving his church, you're showing them something different. In the ways that we forgive, in the ways that we reconcile, in the ways that the church does justice and serves the needs of the poor and the weak and the oppressed here in San Francisco, we are showing the world something different. See, all of these things that God calls us to do as a church, when we actually do it, God says, you're being the salt of the earth. You are actually preserving and de- delaying the decay that sin brings. Now, now, when the church lives like this, when we do what we're supposed to be doing, Jesus, I think, is, he, he's pointing us to the fact that we're also doing something else. We are pointing people to a coming world. We're pointing people to a coming reality, a coming kingdom that we know is coming. This heavenly kingdom where sin one day is not gonna exist, where decay isn't gonna exist. This is a coming kingdom where we know that everybody who's part of this kingdom will experience true love, true joy, true rest. It's a kingdom where we are gonna worship the one true God and there won't be any idols. And so what God is calling us to do is to live that kingdom now, He's calling his church to be a presence of that coming kingdom here in San Francisco. And that is how we fight against the darkness. I think this is where Jesus' second picture comes in. Jesus says, we are the light of the world. And this picture of us being the light of the world, it really builds on the first. And what I mean by that is Jesus is saying, when you live as salt, when you are seeking to bring God's kingdom here on earth, when that, that's what we pray for, right? In the, the, the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on what? On earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray for that and when we, we live that way, Jesus is saying, you will be light. That you can't help but to be light. You will stand out. You will be different. And, and I think this is what he's saying in verses 14 and 15. Read it again with me. He says, you are the light of the world. <clears throat> a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light, a, people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Do you guys see what he's talking about? He's saying, just as light can't be hidden in darkness, the church cannot be hidden when we're living as God calls us to live. We can't help but to reflect the beauty and the glory of God, and, and we are gonna stand out like light in the darkness. And the reason that this happens naturally is because Jesus's beauty, Jesus's grace, his everything that's good about him is so great that that it naturally rubs off on those who follow him. That that his beauty, his greatness is too great that that you can't help when you encounter him to actually be affected by him, to be transformed by him, so that you start looking like him. This idea makes me think of my grandma. Um, my grandma was somebody that, to me, exemplified what a faith-filled life looked like, okay? She was a faith-filled person. She passed away a few years ago, but, but my mom actually told me that when she was growing up in the church that they went to, people in the church would actually call my grandma to cast out demons, like, like, when people in the church thought that they had a demon or, or you know, their husband or wife, or, or when, they, when they thought that there were, like, demons affl- afflicting their houses, they would call my grandma. And, and I know that that sounds strange. I know in our day and age, demon possession, we don't know what to make of that. But I'm, I'm talking about it because that's who my grandma was. Like, I understand why she is the person that they would call. Because if I was a demon, dude, I would be afraid of my grandma, <laughs> Like many of us, we say we believe in God, we say we believe in his promises, but my grandma, she believed. Like she took her Bible everywhere with her. She memorized scripture. It would just naturally come out of her when she would talk to you. And the reason that I bring her up is because I know that if any of you had a chance to talk to her, you would understand what I mean when I say that her faith would rub off on you anybody that would talk to her, that would just naturally happen where her faith would rub off on you. And so I remember back in high school, you know, I would go to her with some high school drama that I was going in. Some girl broke my heart and and, and she would be the one that I would go to to ask for prayer. And, And it's so funny because after 20 minutes of talking to her, after hearing her just recite scripture to me, man, I would totally forget like why I came to talk to her. I would think to myself, I would walk away from those conversations thinking to myself, what am I doing with my life? You know, like, all I need is Jesus. And that's the effect that she had on me. Her faith was that great. Her confidence in God rubbed off on me so that I had more faith, so that I started reflecting more faith in my life. And what I'm saying is that is the effect that Jesus has on his church to a greater extent that all that is beautiful, all that is good and pure about him, it rubs off naturally on those who follow him to the point that the church can't help but to look like his beauty, his goodness, his purity. You see, you cannot encounter Jesus. You cannot experience him for who he truly is and remain unchanged. You will either reject him and actively work against him or you will receive him and submit to him as Lord and Savior. And what I'm saying is that when that happens you will naturally start to see him rubbing off on you. You will see him transforming you, his beauty and grace transforming you to the point that the way that you live your life will start to look like Jesus. The way that you go to work will look like how Jesus would go to work. The way you spend your money, the the kind of conversations, the kind of relationships that you want to be engaged in, it'll all start to reflect Jesus and his values. And I think what Jesus is saying is that as that naturally happens, the world will notice. It can't help but to notice because there will be something different about us. There will be something attractive about us. And yet what's really interesting here is that Jesus says they're not going to be attracted to us. That our good works, that the ways that we show how great and how majestic Jesus is, it's not going to lead people to praise us, but it'll lead them to praise God. And we see this clearly in verse 16. Read it again with me. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now here, um, I just kind of want to raise a potential issue. um, If you kind of go on and read in the Sermon on the Mount, it almost seems like a little bit later, Jesus contradicts what he's saying here. See, because here in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light shine, do good works, so that people would see. But if you notice in the very next chapter, in chapter six, verse one, look at what Jesus says, and I think it should be on the screen. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward uh, from your father who is in heaven. So this kind of seems like a contradiction because Matthew 5, 16, Jesus is saying, let your good works shine, let people see them. But just a few verses later, he tells us, be careful not to do good works and practice righteousness in order to be seen. What is he talking about? Is he contradicting himself? And the answer is, of course he isn't, okay? But you have to understand what he's getting at. You have to understand this second half of the passage that that we haven't even gotten into yet, where in verses 17 to 20, Jesus is talking about the law, and he's talking about a certain kind of righteousness that pleases God. See, you and I have to understand today that there is a righteousness that pleases God, and there is a kind of righteousness that he hates. The righteousness that pleases God, the kind of good works that are supposed to make us shine, it is not like the righteousness of religion. Jesus is saying God hates the righteousness of religion. He is attacking religion. He is attacking the religious leaders, and we see it clearly in verse 20. Read it again with me, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying to the disciples, even the scribes and Pharisees, they're not in the kingdom of heaven. And this is a crazy statement for Jesus to say to his disciples that they have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. They need to be more righteous than the religious leaders of their time. You know why? Because nobody was more righteous than these people. Nobody's righteousness exceeded the scribes and Pharisees. Nobody took holiness. Nobody took obedience. Nobody took righteousness more seriously than these people. They made it their full-time job, their full-time passion to know God's word, to, to, to obey God's word, to even add to God's word, to make their lives even stricter and, and more righteous and holy. These religious leaders set the curve for practicing righteousness. And yet Jesus is telling his disciples here, you need to be more righteous than them. How is that possible? What does he mean? I think Jesus is pointing his disciples and he's pointing us to another kind of righteousness. He's teaching us that God isn't interested in religion, God isn't interested in the righteousness of religion. You see, the righteousness of religion tells you, do right things and you will be right with God. Religion says God accepts you when you obey and do what he tells you to do. Religion teaches you that righteousness is affected based on what you do. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, that is not righteousness at all. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, you want to know what righteousness is? righteousness is knowing who I am. Righteousness is having a relationship with Jesus because he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the only one that is righteous. He is the one that fulfilled the standards of the law and he is the one that the law was actually pointing to. We see this in verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, to understand righteousness according to Christianity, true Christianity, you have to start with the knowledge of who Jesus is. You have to know how he is the fulfillment of the law. See, because religion is the lie that you and I can fulfill the law on our own, that we can live up to certain standards of God. We can live up to the law that he has set forth. And yet the gospel reminds us that that no matter how hard you and I try, you and I will never, we can never live up to God's law or his standard. This is Romans 3.23. The apostle Paul, he tells us that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And religion lies to you when it tells you that you can earn your way back from that fall by doing what God wants you to do. And Jesus is saying here, that is not the point of the law. The law was not meant for you to try and work your way back to God. You can't do that. Jesus is saying the point of the law was to point you to a problem with your heart. That you and I, we have a problem that goes deep into our hearts that can't be fixed by us alone. And yeah, I know that's a hard concept to grasp because when you look at the law, when you look at Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, it's dealing with all external things. Right? It's dealing with our behavior and our actions. It says, You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery or bear false witness. And yet, what Jesus is really teaching here is that underneath that, underneath that command, there is a problem of our heart. And so, when he says that he is the fulfillment of the law, when he says that he is the one that the law was pointing to, What he means is that the law was pointing to a gospel. It was pointing to a reality and a life where one day our hearts would be fixed and God's law could be fulfilled. He is pointing us to an eternal kingdom where everybody's hearts would be fixed and God's law would, would reign and it would rule in that place. This is why the Ten Commandments were given. This is why you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery was given. It wasn't just to keep us from doing those things, but it was meant to point us to a reality and a coming kingdom where no one would murder, where no one would commit adultery because our hearts would be made right and there would be no traces of sin. And so what you are gonna see is that Jesus is the one. He is the only one that could usher in that kingdom. He is the only one that could usher in that gospel and that reality. He is the fulfillment of the law. And just, just to kind of give you guys a brief survey of what's coming up, this is why we are gonna see Jesus in the upcoming sections of the Sermon on the Mount. He is gonna start expounding on and recapitulating the law. He's gonna say, you heard it said in the law before, you shall not murder. But Jesus takes it deeper and he says, guess what? If you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. And what he is saying is that there was a, there was a heart underneath that commandment that God saw the hate in our hearts that would cause us to murder in this life and in this world. Or you will hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But then he goes deeper and he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. And he is saying that at the heart of these commandments, God saw the lust that was there that would cause us to commit adultery in this life and in this world. And he came as one to bring in a better world a better kingdom. See, over and over again, Jesus is going to teach in the upcoming passages in the Sermon on the Mount that, that the law was pointing us to this fact, that, that true righteousness will never and can never be achieved by simply following rules, doing the externals, because there is always a problem of the heart that we can't fix. I know this is kind of hard to grasp your minds around, but maybe this illustration will help. So lately, um, Ali and I, we've been trying to teach our son Jordan this concept of kindness. And, and really, it's because my, my son, at times, he can really be a, a punk. Um, he is selfish. He doesn't know how to share his toys. He doesn't say please and thank you. And, and so as we're seeing him turn into this little monster, we're realizing we need to teach him how to be a kind guy. I don't want him to be that guy with no friends when he grows up. He needs to learn about kindness. And so what we're, we've been doing is walking him through the actions of kindness. We, we tell him, hey, you have to say please when you want something from us. You have to say thank you after we've given it to you. And, and we talk him through it. We say, hey, this is when you share your toys with your, your brother. Even when you wanna play with it, you give it to him. That's what it means to share. And, and the funny thing about Jordan is, is we're telling him to do this, right? And then he'll do it because you know we, we make him do it. But after he does it, he, he looks at us with this kind of stupid grin on his face and he says, hey, I'm being kind, right? Like, he really asked us that. He's saying, I'm being kind. And and you guys got to understand that as a dad, when he says that, man, he ruined the moment for me. (laughs) Like, like he just ruined it. Because that doesn't get me excited. It doesn't get me excited for him to, to just do what I tell him to do and then to seek recognition for doing it. You know what gets me excited? It's when he does it without us telling him to do it. When he starts to, when I feel like he starts to get it because nobody's watching him and, and he just does it on his own. And, and, and righteousness, according to religion, will tell you, do this because God has told you to do it. And yet what religion will always cause you to do is after you do it, you're going to start to look to God. You're going to start to look to others for recognition. But Jesus is teaching us here that true righteousness, the righteousness that you and I need before God, it goes deeper than externals. It goes all the way to our heart. See, if we could simply follow rules and do the right things, then Jesus would have never had to come. If we could have willed ourselves to make our relationship with God right, if we could have obeyed his law, then we wouldn't have needed a savior. But God is wanting us to know today that our problem was so much deeper. There is something, there there was nothing that you and I could have done to fix this problem because how do you fix your own heart? You can't, I can't. This is something that God had to do and he promised to do this. In Ezekiel 36, I love this beautiful passage because God says that he is gonna fix the problem of our hearts. It actually says that he would one day replace our broken hearts, our hearts of stone, and he would put in a new heart, a heart of flesh, And this would be be a new covenant. This would be a new relationship that God would have with his people where our hearts would now be completely healed. And you know what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5? He is saying, I am the fulfillment of that promise. I am the one that comes and heals your heart. God needed to send his own son. He needed to sacrifice his son on a cross to deal with our hearts so that we could finally know what true righteousness is. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you guys see that? It's only because of Jesus. It's only because he came as a fulfillment of the law that you and I are now righteous before God. Jesus was perfect. He obeyed perfectly, and rather than getting a reward, he died a death that you and I deserved. And so now, God looks at us, not in light of our imperfection, but in light of Jesus' perfection. God doesn't look at us and our lack of faith, but he looks at all the ways that Jesus had perfect faith. You see, for those who have placed our faith in Christ, who fulfilled the law for us, we know that we are accepted by God because we're seen in light of Christ. And so it's the beauty of this gospel, it's the beauty of God's grace that now we get to live as righteous people. We get to do this. We don't do it so that people will recognize us, but we do it because we, we have seen what God has done for us and now we want to live according to his agenda. We want to be salt and light in this world. We want to live as, as people who are bringing God's kingdom to this place even now. See, we do it because we want to point people to God's glory and not our own. And so in closing, let me just offer a couple of practical things for you to to, to maybe think about and, and try to apply in your own life if we were to truly believe what Jesus is saying here. I think that being, first, I think that being salt and light in this world means that you have to live for a greater purpose than yourself in your jobs, in your homes, in the spaces that God has placed you. The ambitions of the church, the ambitions of Christian, it can't be the same as those who don't have a relationship with Christ. And so as you work, as you serve, as you're a presence in the city, let's remember that we're living for God's agenda. We are living to fight against the sin and darkness. We are not the ones that will go along with sin, but we will stand against it. I think secondly, being salt and light, it means that you're not it doesn't mean that you're the morality police now, okay? The righteousness that we believe as Christians isn't because we're good, but it's because we believe in a good savior. And so what we want to do isn't show people how the right way to live according to morals, but we want to show them what a right relationship with Jesus looks like. And so if all people know you for is is that you are that conservative, obnoxious, judgmental Christian who is just judging everybody else for their sins and their vices... and and they don't know how you have a living, breathing, real relationship with Jesus, then I don't think you're being salt and light. You have to show people what being in relationship with Jesus is all about. And lastly, I think being salt and light means that, that, that in order to do this, you have to know Jesus. You, you have to, to, to seek him and you have to see his goodness and his character starting to rub off on you. And the only way that you can do that is when you are pressing into him through the means of grace that he's given us, through, through his word, through prayer, through spending time with his people and in his church. See, when you are plugged in in these ways and you are saturated with the life and the character of Christ, you will start to be salt and light. You will start to reflect him in your life, in this church and in the city. And so, church, I just want to encourage us as we go out this week that, that, that we can be salt and light, not, not because we're willing ourselves to do it, but because we have the grace of Jesus Christ within us. We have the spirit of Christ within us. This is what the gospel tells us. We are accepted by God. We are seen as righteous, and so let us live righteous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, <clears throat> we confess to you that Oftentimes, we, we think that this life is more about us than it is about you. God, we confess to you that there are ways where so many of us, rather than living as salt and light, we are trying to please um, the desires of our own heart apart from you. And God, we recognize, though, that even though you knew we would do this, That the gospel doesn't tell us that that we are righteous because we can work our way out of that mess. But, But the gospel tells us that you came and you fixed our problem. You gave us a new heart. And I pray that we would fight this life of faith. We would live this life of faith by believing that we actually have this new heart that we would trust in Jesus that that a relationship with Jesus would be the thing that we want more than anything else in this world and I pray that that we would see the truth of your promises and your word coming to life that as we do that we will reflect your character we will be salt and light in this city God we know that there is so much more that you want us to do in the city there are people who 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 are passing away and passing through this life without knowing the good, goodness and the grace that you offer them in the gospel. And so God, we wanna get involved in your mission. We wanna live in this city according to your agenda by, by bringing the gospel to those that need it the most. And yet I pray that as we do that, um, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be on our own power or on our own strength, but we would seek to daily press into you and see the ways that you will move us and you will guide us as a church. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.